I watched an old skit on, you know, on YouTube. <laughs> That's what I do to turn my mind off is watch YouTube videos. Uh, but man meets woman. Uh, she's kind of uh, thin and beautiful on the beach. And then, you know, they have dinner. And then uh, she eats only salad. And she says, you know, and it's a silent thing. It's just music. And you don't hear them talking. And she makes this thing that she's got to stay thin, right? And... Um, she, uh, th- this happens over and over again all throughout their, their dating life in these little vignettes. She's always like, I don't know, I, g- I got to stay thin, right? And so wedding day finally comes, and at the reception, the wife begins to eat like a sumo wrestler. And before the end of the wedding, before the end of the reception, um, she's already gained 100 pounds, right? <laughs> you know, every time you see her, she's just getting bigger and bigger. And uh, th- it ends with her running down the street with a piece of the wedding cake just you know, chewing on this thing and chasing her new husband who's trying now to get away from her. And uh, it was kind of funny, sorry. But expectations, right? The expectations are set. In our relationships, we all have expectations of the other person and how that relationship should work, right? Um, you know, it, 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 the hardest part of life sometimes is when expectations aren't met. Um, Paul Tripp describes... Uh, the brokenness of our relationships or, or, or our marriages when we come at them with unrealistic expectations. And he states that, and this is a little dark, I'm not sure this is totally true, but, but he states that we put a false impression forward until we get married. Think about that, Seth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tally is a wonderful girl. <laughs> um, but we, we put this false impression forward until we get the ring on our finger, right? And from that point on, we can't uh, sort of hide who we really are, and we live lives of regret because the person we married wasn't the person that we thought we were marrying, right? And, I, you know, that's, I, my wife didn't do that to me, and I hope I didn't do that to her, and I'm sure you guys didn't do that to, to each other, but it can be true, right? And what, what happens? We blame the other person, don't we? We ask a person what's wrong with their marriage and they will point out their spouse's faults and not their own. Rarely do we speak of the issues within our own heart, never asking where were my expectations misplaced or what do I bring to this relationship that makes it not to work, right? And likewise, we can become doubtful of God when he doesn't meet our expectations, right? But God, I think, wants to change our mind, our, change our limited view of him. As obedient followers, I believe that we must let God change our perspective and our expectations of himself. So turn with me to page 669 in your pew Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 20 through 23. Only a few verses. Page 669. And here we find Peter with some wrong expectations of Jesus, and Jesus corrects him as a result, right? Matthew 16, 20 through 23, it says this. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. We're gonna come back to that, why he says that. Uh, Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, wrong expectations concerning Jesus are expressed to him or about him all throughout his ministry, right? You know, as well, it, I think that they are expressed in weak theologies today, and we see that. And we see, here, it, it, we see this here with Peter. Peter's expectation of Jesus as Messiah was quite different than that for which he actually came. In the minds of his followers and many of the people surrounding him, he was to be this militaristic ruler that freed his people from bondage and established an earthly political kingdom then but we have the luxury of looking in hindsight and we know that this was not Jesus. It was not his intent. And Peter's reaction I think is somewhat admirable, right? He wants to protect Jesus even if from himself and in Peter's mind these things just could never happen to the Messiah. It would be inappropriate and it would be wrong. And remember, that that first verse, verse 20, Peter had gotten it right just before this in verse 15, where he says, what about you? Jesus asked, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of God, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. So here you have In one conversation, Jesus both lauded Peter for being right, but also rebuked him for being wrong at the same time. He sees Jesus as Messiah, but he doesn't see the Messiah clearly yet, right? A fundamental phrase that we use in Christianity is that we have a relationship with God, right? And like Peter, we acknowledge Jesus as God, but Oftentimes, we bring our own expectations to that relationship, don't we? We want him to rescue us from every little difficulty in life. We want him to placate us when we are angry. We want him to overlook our sin and never judge us. And we want him to make everything work out to our favor. But we forget that it's not about us. It's about Christ's glory in our lives, that that Jesus came for greater purposes beyond just Jason's felt needs and Jason's faulty expectations. And like any relationship, we often view others through a lens or a set of values that is carved out of our experiences and the voices which shape us, and some of those uh, expectations are faulty. And part of sanctification, or the transformation into the likeness of Christ, as we call it, is to allow the Holy Spirit, coupled with the Word of God, to convict us when we are conforming to the patterns of this world, to the thought patterns, to the ways of life of this world, and uh, to instead to submit ourselves as living sacrifices to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And that is a process by which God must break down our schematic that we have created and how we think he should operate, right? Since when God doesn't perform the way that we think he should, we become frustrated and doubt his loyalty to us. You do this with your spouse, right? 
You expect them to do something when they don't do something. You're very disappointed. Even though you don't communicate it, you expect them to read your mind, right? Like kids playing house who inevitably, you know, one inevitably will say to the other one, you're not doing it right. Do it this way. Say this. And the disciples often did this to Jesus. Jesus was constantly challenging the disciples' expectations of what God was doing in the world. Jesus was telling his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem, be tortured, and die, and rise again on the third day. He made that very, very clear, right? And Peter thinks he knows best and says, that'll never happen, right? And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Right after saying, you got it right, Peter, he turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Try that with your spouse. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, but that won't work too well. Don't don't try that. But um, I got divorced. Why? My pastor told me to tell my wife, get behind me, Satan. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) But... So Peter has this expectation of the Messiah, and Jesus brings doubt to that expectation. Peter says, you're not doing it right. Do it this way, Jesus. But Peter's mind wasn't set on God's desire, but he only saw his, or God's perspective. He only saw his own perspective. Trying to thwart God's plan for Jesus is the role of the devil and not of the disciple, right? Hence Christ's reply. Jesus isn't like accusing Peter of literal demon possession, but he is dramatically indicating that the perspective that Peter represents, although in good intention, even unwittingly, is the same as Satan's. How often do I do that, I wonder, right? Peter's no longer acting like the foundation block for the church. He's acting like the stumbling block to Jesus reflecting the viewpoint of unredeemed humanity rather than God's will. And this is where I would say to you, and this is very important to remember, this is why old is better than new. And as a matter of fact, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything just cycles, doesn't it? All these thought thought patterns, all these worldviews come in and out of vogue, you know, in fashion and stuff. They go in and out. And we as the church stay consistent on what we believe. Old is better than new. It really is. And so when we know that old is better than new and that we have some solidity that we can hold on to, we approach those intellectual and emotional and moral doubts that we talked about last week as believers that just need to learn more instead of cynical skeptics, right? Church tradition and longstanding doctrinal beliefs should not and cannot be thrown out or reinterpreted because they don't fit our modern narrative because we're just looking through a new cultural lens. The church has agreed upon these things for centuries for very good reason. They're set in place after a long exploration of the scriptures and we stand in agreement on these things and we have forever. But sadly, we know that many now reinterpret Scripture to the detriment of humanity, the deconstruction movement. It is tearing churches apart, left and right. And we know that spiritual letdown happens through poor theology. Let me say that twice. Spiritual letdown happens through poor theology. 
If you want to have your, your, your uh, faith be shipwrecked, follow the prosperity gospel. Just give it a little, little time and you, you, won't, you won't have any faith anymore after a while. A friend of mine's mother died a number of years ago <clears throat> due to her belief in Christian science, uh, which kept her from seeking medical treatment for her cancer. Uh, it was devastating to my friend because he went to the, the funeral and the guy sitting next to him had an open lesion on his head. He was a Christian science himself, a scientist himself and wouldn't go to the doctor for that. And he, watching his mother get buried while he's seeing this guy next to him who probably will have gone very quickly himself. Because Christian science is a false, I'll say that, I'll say that clearly. I'm not afraid to say it. It's a false metaphysical religion which reinterprets the Bible to stress the importance of mind and words to bring about healing in the body. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Deviation from orthodoxy has dire effects in our lives and in our relationships. It does. God's way is the best way. It really is. And it even could lead to death at times. Right? It's that important. So we here at 6-8, let Jesus be Jesus as presented to us in the scriptures. Amen. Amen. He constantly had to to distinguish between the nature of God's kingdom and the role of the Messiah with people. For Second Temple Jews, the Messiah was a military king who would come along, he would vanquish Rome, he would establish his national kingdom, and throughout this, his ministry, of, the ministry of Jesus, the disciples repeatedly tried to align him with that expectation. When Peter cut off the soldier's ear and Jesus healed the soldier in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was a surprise to Peter. Even just before he, he ascended to heaven, you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, his disciples were asking, still asking, if he was going to set up his kingdom right now. But Jesus told them, what did he tell them? He told them to wait for the Holy Spirit, that they would be his witnesses to the world, that it would be hard that some of them were going to die. He even predicted Peter's death. Peter, right? I think, I think I'm right on that. Um, that they would suffer. Doesn't sound like he's got great political power. Jesus wasn't concerned about setting up some powerful political kingdom. And the, the sad truth about it is that we often do that ourselves, aligning ourselves with certain political agendas and just disregarding God's call to be witnesses and living sacrifices to the world. We care more about our politics than we do about God's kingdom moving forward. In many ways, Jesus confounded the expectations of the people of his day, and he's still doing the same to us. To understand the expectations that people held of the Messiah, author and speaker Gene Jones outlined four faulty expectations of the people of his time. And what follows are largely her words. But number one, firstly, that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. Remember, Messiah and Christ just came from two different languages. They were synonymous titles coming from the Davidic line, meaning anointed one, right? And so God, if you remember, God interrupted David's dynasty uh, when the kings had stopped submitting to God as king of kings. 
But the prophets who announced the exile, which ended their reign, also announced that God would bring the exiles back and that he would send a new king that was descended from David, right? And the king would rule, uh, he would rule forever, as stated in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. He says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, most Jews, as I've said, expected a Messiah to lead a revolt against Rome and establish this earthly kingdom at once, at that moment. But, but, and by Jesus' day, the, the exiles had long, long since returned, but the promised Messiah hadn't shown up for them, and instead, Rome still ruled them, right? And we know that Jesus fulfilled some prophecies about the Messiah in his first coming. We know that. He identified himself as Messiah in John chapter 4. He was descended from David and was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he also performed signs which were expected under the Messianic rule, such as the healings. And he sent word to John the Baptist, which we really recently heard about, that he, it was evidence of his, uh, that he was the Messiah. Uh, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a uh, donkey colt, as the people welcomed him as, as the Messiah in fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9. Um, and because of these things, Jesus' disciples expected him to establish an earthly kingdom immediately, right? And that's why they asked him in Acts 1.6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There are reasons for these questions. And it's also why John the Baptist was somewhat confused when Jesus didn't, you know, get him out of prison. Why would he leave him there? Why would he leave him there to die? because he was the Messiah, right? That can't happen. Jesus didn't fulfill all prophecies about the Messiah in his first coming, right? He didn't establish this earthly kingdom. Instead, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He resisted their desire to make him king in this way. He explained the kingdom of God was going to be a different type of kingdom in Luke chapter 17 when he said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that, you, that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is, is in your midst or it's within you. But we also know that Jesus will fulfill the remaining prophecies in the future, right? Right? He rules at the Father's right hand now, Ephesians chapter 1. He'll return on the clouds of heaven and will gather his servants from the four winds from the one end of the earth to the other, Daniel 7 and Matthew 24. God will make a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem will des descend upon it. Revelations 21, my things are hitting the mic. Greg's back there cringing. Um, the throne, of the, uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb will, will be there and the servants will reign with him forever and ever, Revelations chapter 22, right? So secondly, Jesus was both Messiah and the prophet like Moses. Hang with me and you'll understand. In the first century, Jews desired the fulfillment of prophecy about both a Messiah and a prophet like Moses, 
That's what they were waiting for. That's why Jesus began teaching and performing miraculous signs. And people, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ in John chapter 7. So they labeled him as two different people, right? Some thought this, some thought that. So the expectation of a prophet like Moses comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18 where it says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever not, will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I, I myself will require it of him. So Jesus gave many signs that he was the prophet like Moses. Moses turned water to blood. Jesus turned water to wine. Like Moses, Jesus commanded the sea and it obeyed. With Moses, the people ate manna that miraculously appeared in the, in the wilderness. With Jesus, the people ate bread and, and fish that miraculously multiplied in the wilderness. But some Jew, Jewish leaders desired neither a Messiah nor a prophet. The Jewish leadership was really composed of two Jewish sects, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were really this aristocratic sort of wealthy band of priests who wanted good relationships with Rome, and they wanted to retain their power in that relationship. And they hoped for neither a Messiah nor a resurrection, partly because they held, they held more strongly to the first five books of Moses. In higher, they held that in higher regard than they did all the other Old Testament books. And Jesus presented problems for priests. He really did. First, Moses had had authority over the high priest. So if a prophet like Moses appears and comes along, right, the Sadducees would have to give up that authority and that status to that person. And this was apparent when Jesus drove the money changers and the sellers out of the temple, if you remember that story. Thus, he just challenged the, the priest's authority to run the temple as they desired to run the temple. Second, they wanted to prevent anyone claiming to be Messiah from gaining any followers because Rome might have to quell a rebellion and the Sadducees would lose their power. Many Jewish leaders expected a Messiah that was submissive to them in spiritual matters, that wasn't the boss. The rest were Pharisees who wanted a warrior king to lead a revolt against Rome, but who also uh, wanted him to be submissive to them in spiritual matters as well. And they taught that the Messiah and the prophet to be two different people. And the Pharisees had, uh, you know, a long set of rules they used on how to interpret the law of, the lo law of Moses and how that should be applied and all that kind of stuff. For example, you know that they they, their rules described what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, right? And the problem for them was also that Moses had been the ultimate authority on how to apply the law. So a prophet like Moses might threaten their authority. And that's what happened. If you think about it, Jesus rejected the Pharisees' authority to, to uh, interpret the law of Moses. And when Jesus healed people and the Pharisees told him to stop, uh, on the Sabbath, if you remember those stories, Jesus told them that their reasoning was faulty. It was bad. It was wrong. And he continued healing. He also pointed out that they rejected God's commands in favor of their own rules, which he just labeled as traditions of men, right? Had nothing to do with what God wanted. 
And that incensed the Pharisees and convinced most of them that he could not be the Messiah. But the crowds embraced Jesus as both Messiah and prophet, didn't they? They really did. And that's why they declared him the prophet who is to come into the world and then attempted to make him king in John chapter 6. But ruling on earth wasn't part of Jesus' immediate plan, right? Still, when large crowds started following Jesus because of his miracles, the Jewish leaders feared that they would lose their power, as we see in John 11 when it says, what are we to do? (laughs) What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Can't get around that, right? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We'll lose our power, in other words. The Sadducees didn't really care uh, that Jesus rejected the Pharisaical traditions. They did too. But they, were, they, they did care a lot about losing their own uh, waning political power. Thirdly, the Messiah was also the suffering servant. The Messiah was also the suffering servant. Isaiah prophesied uh, about a righteous suffering servant quite often, but no one thought that the Messiah and the suffering servant could be the same person because the Messiah was supposed to live forever, to rule forever, right? While the suffering servant, they knew, had to die. As they saw in Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So they couldn't see how the Messiah, who was supposed to save Israel from Rome and establish this everlasting kingdom, could also be the suffering servant who dies. And that's why when Jesus told his disciples that he would have to, be, he would have to suffer and be killed and on the third day raise again, that's why Peter rebuked him and said that that could never happen. Can't be the Messiah and die. That's also why when Jesus told the crowd that he would be lifted up from the earth, they did surmise that he was speaking of death. They got it. They understood that. And they replied, we have heard from the law that that the Christ remains forever. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? In other words, how can you say that the Messiah is going to die? That's John chapter 12, verse 34. But Isaiah gave clues that the suffering servant was the Messiah. There are four uh, servant songs in Isaiah, chapter 42, 49, 50, and 52, and they all proclaim the coming of a righteous suffering servant, and they all hint of similarities between the suffering servant and the Messiah. Both would be anointed by God's Spirit. Both would bring justice. Both would be, uh, be righteous. Both would make others righteous. And both would bring peace. And both would participate in bringing Israel back to God. And both would be part of a new covenant. So Jesus did fulfill prophecies about the suffering servant in being crucified with the wicked and buried in a rich man's tomb. You saw that? That's from Isaiah 53. But the next two verses 
in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, reveals something quite remarkable. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his, his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. It's the gospel, right? So, so although the suffering servant dies, he'll come back to life. That's what he's saying. Which means because Jesus conquered death as suffering servant, he also reigns as Messiah forever. And then fourthly, the prophet was also the suffering servant. Moses was sort of an archetype to Jesus, but Jesus was not merely a prophet speaking God's words. He was the word who was God. John chapter one, verse one, right? Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant show the servant had similarities with, but was superior to Moses. The Lord gave the first covenant through Moses, but he gave the suffering servant as the new covenant. The suffering servant fulfilled everything the sacrificial system that was put in place by Moses could not fully do. He was the light of the nations which Israel failed to become under the law of Moses. And as suffering servant, Jesus died, he rose again, and he atoned for people's sin as Moses wanted to do but could not do as we see in Exodus 30, 32 and uh, verse 30 and Isaiah 53, 12. So the, the, the Jews expected the promised Messiah to lead this revolt on earth, but Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. They thought the Messiah, the prophet, like Moses and the suffering servant, to be three different people. But Jesus demonstrated that he was all three. They were all speaking about him. Because he's the suffering servant, who died and rose again, he is Messiah King who will reign forever in the new heaven and the new earth. As the suffering servant, Jesus fulfilled all to which Moses and the sacrificial system pointed. It was all fulfilled in him. And because the suffering servant bore our iniquities, we can now become children of God and live in his kingdom with him eternally. That's the beauty of it. But there was a lot of confusion as to what the Messiah would be uh, then to all these people as they defined him through their own cultural moment. We also tend to define him through our own cultural moment and lens, don't we? Do you define him through a democratic lens? Do you define him through a Republican lens? Do you define him through a social justice lens? What do you define him through? And what's wrong with that lens, right? We've gotta ask ourselves, is our relationship with God about him meeting all of our expectations. And when he doesn't, we begin to doubt. Faith falls apart. Is our relationship, on the other hand, is our relationship with God about him, him 
shaping our desires, our perspectives, and our understanding of life as to who as to his will, who he is, and learning to trust him in that. We cannot let false expectations of Jesus form doubt and hamstring his work in and through us. As Francis Chan once said, when I disagree with something in the scriptures, I assume I am wrong. I agree. And then, then, I move forward as a believer who simply has more to learn rather than some cynical cynical skeptic who simply wants to reinterpret now, you know, reinterpret Jesus, reinterpret the scriptures because my world has caused me to doubt who he actually is because I'm looking at him through the wrong lens. It's awfully quiet in here. (laughs) Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. And uh, how do we apply this, right? That's what we ask ourselves. How do we apply this? We uh, want to practice Romans 12, 1 and 2. We want to not conform to the patterns of this world, no matter how unpopular that makes us. And we want to be transformed into your likeness to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. And we want to be living sacrifices for the sake of your glory in this world, for the sake of the calling of Matthew 28 to go and reach the nations with the gospel, to see other people hear your gospel, hear your word to them, and call them back into relationship with you. That is our purpose. That is our joy. That is our life. That is what we want but we confess that we often get derailed. And we want to be thinking Christians and caring Christians. We want to be Christians of spirit and truth. We want to be Christians of grace and mercy. We want to be Christians of just deep, powerful transformation into your likeness. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.